Welcome to the Reclaim Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Whether you're a part of our Reclaim Church family or just tuning in for the first time, we would love to connect with you on Instagram at Reclaim Church or at our website at reclaimed-church.com. We hope this word encourages and inspires you today. Let's dive in. If you guys were here last week, I started a series on the book of Jude, which is a super short book in the New Testament right before you get to Revelation. It's only one chapter. So last week we went through verses one through four. This week we're going to do verses five through 10. So it's kind of just like a verse by verse study. And I kind of explained all this last week, but the goal is, is that you guys know the scripture really well. Okay. That is our absolute desire for you because like Jude talks about in the first four verses is that that there are people that will want to lead you astray. There's pastors and teachers that will want to lead you astray. And the truth is, half of you don't even know what the book of Jude is. So it's very possible that you guys can be led astray. And it's because you don't know scripture. And when you don't know scripture, you have to trust a pastor more than you trust the Bible, right? And I don't want you guys to trust me. I don't want you to trust what I say. I want you to listen to what I say and make sure that it's aligning with scripture as you listen to it, all right? So that's kind of the goal. Just a quick recap from last week. Again, we did verses one through four. Um, We went through kind of the backstory or some of the historical stuff behind Jude. Um, Jude is normally referred to, it's kind of a nickname that um, translators gave him. His real name is actually Jude. Judas, and he is one of the brothers of Jesus. And they started to translate it into Jude because they were afraid that people might confuse him with Judas Iscariot, all right? Because that would be a pretty bad person to get confused with, right? Um, The Hebrew um, or the Greek way to actually pronounce Jude is Judah. So depending on... um, you know, who you're around or how they pronounce it. You might hear people say Judah, Jude, or even refer to him as Judas. He's a pretty cool guy. He gets three names, but that's who he is. So that's kind of what we talked about last week. And he started this letter because he wanted to make sure that you guys, he's speaking to the believers, wasn't specifically written to you, but you guys are believers, right? So we can jump in there. He was writing to believers and he wanted to make sure that they were really good at defending their faith. In order to defend your faith, you have to actually have faith and know your faith, right? We want to make sure that we know the core principles of our faith. Quick, quick recap, but just to read verse four so you guys can kind of understand where we left off last week. So Jude chapter one, verse four, he says, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives, All right? This is the point, is if you go to a church and they're overemphasizing God's grace, you will never know it unless you know the Bible, all right? We wanna make sure that we don't um, overemphasize God's justice but we want to make sure that we are using it to harmonize scripture. And we know, okay, I know God as a just God and as a loving God. I'm not going to overemphasize his love and his grace to do what I want. And I'm not going to overemphasize his justice so that I can make other people feel bad when they do things that I don't approve of. So we want to make sure that we know God as a just and loving God, that we harmonize scripture to see God for who he truly is. And that's why you can um, sit in a chair or be talking to someone and you can hear them say something about God and you go, 
I don't think that that's really how God is. And it's because you can go, I know scripture, and in this verse, and in this passage, I believe that God reveals himself in this way, all right? So the point is, you need to know scripture. The point of this letter, as Jude starts it out, that you need to defend your faith because there's people out there that have wormed their way into the churches, these quote-unquote false teachers, and they want to convince you to live immoral lives. And Jude says, the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master, Lord Jesus. All right, so they are denying Jesus by overemphasizing grace. All right, all on the same page? Fun stuff, all right? Literally this week, again, we're doing a verse-by-verse study. We're just going to read a bunch of scripture. Um, That's kind of what I had planned for. It normally works out. Hopefully everyone that came really likes reading the Bible, right? Because that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to go through a bunch of verses because in these five verses, Jude is talking about examples of rebellion and then God's justice to that rebellion, all right? So in those examples, he gives multiple stories, and instead of just going over the stories and, like, mentioning them, I thought it'd be cool to flip over into every place in Scripture and read his examples, and he also um, refers to the Apocrypha in a few places, so we'll jump into that too, all right? Sound like fun? Sweet. This sounds like fun to me. All right, so Judah, Jude, Judas, chapter one, verse five, it says, so I want to remind you, though you already know these things, because again, he's speaking to an audience of believers, and back then they were a lot better at knowing scripture than a lot of us. They grew up from a young age being taught the um, Hebrew scriptures, so they knew it well. And he said, but I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. All right, so you guys know the story, right? There were the Israelites, they were captive, um, there were slaves in Egypt, there were 10 plagues, they got set free, the Egyptian um, army's chasing them, right? And they come up to the sea and the sea parts. In my opinion, I still think that this would have been one of the coolest miracles in all scripture to witness. Can you imagine walking through a sea that's parted? I mean, maybe it's, you know, 20 feet tall on either side and, you know, you're seeing fish swim alongside of you and you're literally just walking through it. I mean, talk about a God that provides. I mean, you come to a sea, it parts, you walk through, and then the army that's chasing you, it collapses on top of them. I mean, that is just unbelievable, all right? So eventually the story goes, they pretty quickly arrive to their quote-unquote promised land. They're at the, um, you know, the doorstep of it, but because of their lack of faith, they are kept from it. All right, so the same people that go through a sea lack faith that God's going to protect them and provide for them. And that's why we need a reminder because at times God can show up in your life. He can show up in your family's life. And then when you come to the doorstep of your next problem, you completely forget what it is that he's done. 
And Jude wants to make sure that you don't make the same promise that people have made before you because of the fact that they did not have faith. Remember, it's impossible to please God without faith because of the fact that they had no faith. They wandered in the desert until every single adult Israelite died because they didn't get to enter into the promises of God with fear and a lack of faith. If you're going to enter into what God has for you and the promise that he has for you, it requires faith. And many of us never get to experience the plan that God has for our life because we lack faith. And Jude wants to make sure that we are walking in faith. He's reminding us of the story in Numbers chapter, 11, chapter 14 that these people died in the wilderness because they had no faith, right? So they had a promise, they rebelled by not believing in God. And then the justification that God brought down, the justice that he brought down was the fact that they had to die in the wilderness. God still provided for them in the wilderness, literally rained down food from heaven. These people got to experience a lot, but this just shows you that a miracle doesn't make you a believer for the rest of your life, all right? I mean, we have to really be founded on who God truly is, but the fact is that they still wandered because of their lack of faith, all right? So... The warning that Jude starts out with is that the people of Israel started out well from Egypt, but they did not end well. In the same way, these false teachers, they could have started out well, but they didn't end well, right? Many of us as believers, we start out well, but the real, and the real final test of Christianity is endurance. Some start the race, but few finish it. We need to make sure that we're not people that just start the race, but we are people that actually finish the race. And it requires consistency. It requires us being able to like those songs that we were singing, laying it down, God, it's all for you. I don't want to be someone that enters up to, that walks up to the doorstep of the promised land and turns away because of a lack of faith. I want to make sure that my faith is rooted in you. And if you guys want to jot down some stuff, um, there's some verses and I think it's Psalm 95 near the end of it. I think it's verse 15 and 16, if I remember correctly, where God talks about um, just his sadness with the people of Israel, that they were willing to turn away, that they weren't actually wanting to follow the Lord. So hopefully that is the right verse. If not, read it. It'll probably be good. All right. So... Moving on to the next verse, Jude goes on. This is verse six. All right, I literally love this book. Like, I just think Jude is the coolest book. And he says, and I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of the authority that God gave them. So again, remember, he's telling stories. He's giving examples of rebellion and then justice. So we heard the first example. This is the second example. And I remind you, the angels who did not stay within the limits of the authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. And it says, God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of Judgment. So this is the next, next example, and Jude is referring to Genesis chapter 6 and actually a um, portion out of 1st Enoch chapter 7. So just in case you didn't know, 1st Enoch is not part of the canon. I feel like I'm going to have to repeat myself. I don't want to lose you guys here, right? So remember that the canon of Scripture is our 66-book 
Bible, all right? That's what we believe as Christians is the inspired word of God. A few weeks ago, I went through the standard of how a book is kept, is put into the canon. Um, you know, we have our 27 book canon. It's like the standard. These are the authoritative word of God. Now there's other books known as the Apocrypha that were not included into this canon. And it could have been for many reasons. The book of Enoch specifically is the fact that it was written over a long period. So Enoch is like 138 chapters. And within the book of Enoch, there's like five other books. So it's hard to tell um, whether or not all of it was written by Enoch himself. The end of it kind of gets to where it's like straight heresy. And it's written like centuries later after Enoch was even alive. And there's not as many manuscripts. So in order for us to preserve, again, the Council of Nicaea, they brought in these books that they knew were written by witnesses of the resurrection. So in order for us to preserve the written word of God, some of the books were kept out. Now, does that mean that the beginning portion of Enoch was written by Enoch? Possibly, but we don't know for sure. So whenever we read books of the Apocrypha, they're not evil, they're not scary, but we just have to read them with the understanding that this is not the inspired word of God. It could, however, be written by someone who was in scripture. It could be written by the Apostle John. It could be written by Enoch, but we don't know for sure. Does that make sense? Everyone on the same page? Sweet. All right, good. So we're going to start with the Genesis 6 passage. And if you guys are super green to scripture, you're going to be like, what on God's earth is going on? All right, so we're going to start with Genesis 6, six and then we're going to go over to um, First Enoch. And your boy has the book, so I'll get to read it to you guys. All right, so here we go. Genesis 6, chapter 1, verse 8. I'm reading out of the Good News translation. And it says, when people had spread all over the world, we're in chapter 6 of Genesis, guys. So early on in, well, that's debated too. All right, so early on in the Bible, <laughs> when people had spread all over the world and daughters were being born, some of the heavenly beings saw that these young women were beautiful. So they took the ones that they liked. Then the Lord said, I will not allow people to live forever. They are mortal from now from now on, they will live no longer than 120 years. This portion right here is why you see early on in scripture, people living like 900 years, and then all of a sudden it stopped. Um, God changed kind of the age there. It says, in those days and even later, there were giants on the earth who were descendants of human women and heavenly beings. They were the great heroes and famous men of long ago. When the Lord saw how wicked everyone on earth was and how evil their thoughts were all the time, he was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on the earth. He was so filled with regret that he said, I will wipe these people that I have created and also the animals and the birds because I am sorry that I ever made any of them. But the Lord was pleased with no, and that last verse, you kind of get to see just the line of redemption throughout all of scripture, but that's a message for a different day. All right, so again, uh, did you guys know that this was kind of um, the background for the flood? I mean, this was kind of the background was the fact that there were um, fallen angels, that they came down, that they desired women, that they had sex with them, and then they had offspring, and then these offsprings were giants. Isn't that interesting? The Bible is really interesting, guys. All right, so um, 
Just to kind of give you a backstory, so Enoch, like the whole first portion of Enoch is all about the watchers, and it's all about what goes on in Genesis chapter 6, but it's in much greater detail. Again, I'm not going to keep repeating myself. I'll say it one more time. The Apocrypha could be real. It could not be, you know, historical. Uh, we can learn something from it. All right, so you guys get my view on that. I'm not going to keep repeating myself, so I hope it's clear. All right, but just to give you a backstory on Enoch, Enoch is in Scripture. He shows up in multiple times in the New Testament and the Old Testament he's referred to. But just to kind of give you a passage out of Genesis chapter 5, in case you're super unaware of who Enoch is. So Genesis 5, 21, it says, when Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God for another 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day he disappeared because God took him. And in the book of Enoch, that's kind of what you get to read about is what his experience was like after he was caught up. Very similar to kind of um, John's revelation and revelation. Um, kind of when you read the two, they are very similar, especially in those first like 30 chapters after that it starts to get pretty odd. All right. So we're going to read um, first Enoch chapter seven. And I got it on the screen. You guys won't have this in your Bible, so you guys can kind of read it along, all right? So, it's, so this is Genesis 6, different perspective and a little bit more uh, detail. And it says, these and all the others with them took for themselves wives from among them such as they chose. And they began to go into them and to defile themselves through them and to teach them sorcery and charms and to reveal to them the cutting of roots and plants. And they conceived from them and bore great giants. Giants begot Nephilim and Nephilim were born to Elidith. And then they were in growing accordance with their greatness. So as you read on through first Enoch, it actually talks about um, kind of what you see in Genesis 6, where God talks about how everything was evil and all they thought about was wickedness. Um, these fallen angels actually teach them all of these uh, chants and sorceries and all of these things that we would define as evil. They actually train people up in the ways to practice magic and all of this stuff. Again, just kind of interesting, could be, um, could be correct that there's some backstory there. And um, if we want to jump forward to 1 Enoch chapter 21, Enoch explains what happens to these fallen angels. So between chapters uh, like 7 through 20, it's all about... Um, you know, what goes on with these fallen angels and how they're um, being captured. And then in verse 21, um, Enoch's caught up into heaven and he's like looking around and right before this, he, he views a different dungeon. And then in verse 21, this is like on the outskirts of this like heavenly realm that he views. It says, um, it's titled the prison of the fallen angels. It says from there, I traveled to another place more terrible than this one, the last one that he was at. And I saw terrible things, a great fire burning and flaming. And the place had a narrow cleft extending to the abyss full of great pillars of fire born downward, neither the measure nor the size was I able to see or to estimate. It sounds like Lord of the Rings to me as I read it. Um, <laughs> 
Then I said, how terrible is this place and fearful to look at. Then Uriel answered me, one of the holy angels who was with me and said to me, Enoch, why are you so frightened and shaken? And I replied, because of this terrible place and because of the fearful sight. And he said, this place is a prison for, for the angels. Here they will be confined forever. He also, if you notice, that's a... Um, Uriel is an angel name that is not in scripture. Again, not going to repeat myself, but there's actually, um, Enoch goes through a description of like multiple archangels and he goes through the description of Michael and what Michael's job was and what these other archangels jobs were. Again, super cool. Who knows if it's, um, you know, True or not, but just a cool thing to read, all right? And in case you're wondering, would I recommend that you read the Apocrypha? I would recommend you read it if you have read every single word of scripture, all right? If you go, you know what? I've read every single word of the Bible. I'm very familiar with it. Then I would say, sure, go ahead and read some of these other books because they're fun. But the problem is, is if you're not super familiar with scripture, you'll read some of this and the way that our minds recall information, you will possibly believe that things are authoritative or you'll thought, well, actually God's like this. And what you'll be doing is you'll read be recalling Apocrypha and not scripture, all right? So you wanna make sure that you're like really grounded in scripture before you go about, you know, reading first and second Maccabees and you know, all that stuff, which is really cool. It's fun, but you wanna make sure that we're very grounded in scripture. All right, we clear on that, makes sense? All right, so again, he talks about this place for a prison for angels, you know, where these fallen angels would have gone because after the flood, um, God dealt with all of these angels. Now there's one place in scripture where um, it's referred to this dungeon of fallen angels. Does anyone happen to know? I would be so geeky out if I was in the crowd. I'd be like, yes, me. All right, so this is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. You should have raised your hand, mom. You knew. Um, all right, so Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. Again, the reason why it's fun to read Enoch is because when you know scripture like fairly well, you can kind of piece it together. You're like, oh, that sounds like backstory to Second Peter. Oh, that makes sense with Genesis chapter 6. You just want to make sure um, scripture is your, your foundation and you're just kind of having fun with the other stuff. So just a cool, um, again, we're just kind of doing a Bible study today, having fun. This is my version of fun. Um, in case you didn't know, every single time in scripture, when you read the word hell, this would be a really bad sound bite. Um, don't take this out, but there's no like hell in scripture, all right? So there are multiple Greek and Hebrew words that are translated into hell, our English word hell, all right? So there's um, Gehenna, which is the dump outside of Jerusalem, which had a constant flame. And then, you know, people would burn bodies there and dogs would gnash their teeth. Jesus would use Gehenna in reference to something that was to come, which is called the lake of fire or um, in the Hebrew, Hebrew context, there'd be words like Sheol, which actually means just grave, 
That's all it means. But sometimes in scripture, it might be translated to hell. And other times it might be translated to just grave. Like uh, I believe it's Abraham. One verse says, and Abraham went down to Sheol, which it's translated grave. But then in another verse, it's translated hell. And it would just be weird if it said Abraham went down to hell. So it's important to know as we read scripture, every single time we come about this word hell, There is no, again, I hope you understand what I'm saying. There is no hell. There is Sheol, there's Gehenna, and what we're about to talk about now, there's Tartarus, and then there is the thing to come, which is the lake of fire, all right? So when I tell people it's kind of a shock to them, I don't really believe in a hell. I believe in a lake of fire, which is to come, but this word hell is just kind of an English translation, and they would use different words, like Jesus would use Gehenna to illustrate the lake of fire, which is to come. Make sense? You guys are learning a lot if this is new stuff for you, all right? So now there's this word called Tartarus, and this is the only place, if you want to throw a second Peter back up, this is the only place in all of scripture where this word Tartarus pops up, and that's what's translated to hell. He threw them into hell, and the word is Tartarus, all right? So Tartarus is this place, this fiery dungeon for the angels that have... um, you know, went away, that they didn't obey God. They were sentenced to this place called Tartarus, which again, this is just cool stuff in my opinion, all right? So now I'm going to give you my opinion, all right? This is just my opinion, but this is why I believe in Matthew chapter eight, if you guys know scripture well, it'll come to your mind. In Matthew chapter eight, when Jesus um, gets out of the boat and he walks up and he meets this guy named Legion and the um, demons start to talk to him. You guys know what I'm talking about? And Legion starts saying, please, if you cast us out, allow us to go into the pigs. All right. Now, if you notice, whenever Legion left the man and went into the pigs, what did the pigs do? They just jumped off and they died. All right. My opinion is they didn't really just want to live in pigs, but they were so afraid that Jesus was going to sentence them to Tartarus, a waiting area, a dungeon. And they wanted to make sure that they were allowed to roam the earth. Right. Because welcome, you know, here on earth, this is the home for demons. Right. There's no Satan in charge of hell. In case you guys didn't know, hell is the punishment for Satan. All right, this is the weirdest thing in the world how all of a sudden, like, Satan is the king of hell. Like, no, that is his punishment. He's actually roaming the earth, all right? So that's kind of how it works, bound but not yet. You know how it works? All right, so that's kind of what's going on is no one's... Um, this is another debate, but no one's in this hell place. They're, they're awaiting um, the lake of fire, which is on the final judgment. That's what it talks about in Second Peter, that they're awaiting the day of final judgment. So they're in this awaiting area for the final judgment when the dead will rise and they will be, um, you know, can justice will be brought depending on what it is that they've done and if they believe and all of that good stuff. All right. So that's my opinion of what I think happened in Matthew chapter eight, just because of the fact that the demons just went into the pigs and killed the pigs. And, you know, if he's going to cast them out, why do they want to go into the pigs? So I think they're fearful of going to Tartarus. It makes sense to me. Again, only place in scripture where that verse shows up. So we kind of get to see some of the backstory in Enoch. And just so you know, Jude will also refer to another piece of the Apocrypha in a few verses. This is not the only place in scripture where 
they refer to the Apocrypha. So I think it's like Second Chronicles, a portion of Numbers, First Corinthians. There's multiple places in Scripture where they will refer to the Apocrypha. Um, many of the uh, Church fathers referred to the Apocrypha and they had a great respect for it. They didn't value it like scripture, just like I said, but they still realized that they could learn things from it. All right, everyone makes sense? Sounds good? All right, so we're going to move on to verse 7. So again, Judas showing us again how rebellion is met with justice. The angels rebelled and they received justice from it. So it's good to know God as a loving and gracious God, which is so important. But we need to understand that God is also a God of justice, all right? Just like Jesus said, do not mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what it is that you plant, all right? That's just how God works, all right? So verse 7, and he said, and don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality of every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the entire, of the internal fire of God's judgment. All right. So fun stuff. We went to Genesis six. Now we get to go to Genesis 19. All right. If you guys are unfamiliar with this stuff, you're going to be like, what is going on with the Bible? All right. So we're going to jump over to, um, Genesis 19. But before we do, um, a lot of times Sodom and Gomorrah is viewed as just this like, nasty, evil place. But I want to be clear that like Sodom and Gomorrah was meant to be a place of great blessing and privilege, right? So if you want to flip over Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, it talks a little bit about Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, um, Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zorah. The whole area was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. So this was meant to be a place of great privilege, a blessing. This was an amazing town. It's not like it was just doomed from the start. All right. Makes sense. So it's because of what people do in cities that ruin cities. All right. God had probably great plans for this place, but instead it was used as a symbol because of the fact that people rebelled and then justice was brought. All right, so in case you don't know um, some of the stuff that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to jump over to Genesis chapter 19. And I need to breathe some. I've never talked this fast in my life. There's just a lot of Bible verses. I want to make sure we get to them. All right, here we go. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Yes, again, in Genesis, you get to see lots of angels and stuff. This was like a thin time between um, the heavenly realm and um, humanity. Okay. We go through kind of thin and thick places, you know, after the book of Malachi, we get 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak. It's just, God wants to do what he's going to do. Okay. And at this time there's lots of angels walking around. All right. That's just how it was. And it says that evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there. And when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My Lord, he said, come to my home and wash your feet and be my guest for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. 
Oh no, they replied. We'll just spend the night out here in the city square. But Lot insisted. So at last they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with the feast of bread made without yeast. And they ate. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind them. Please, my brothers, it gets worse, guys. Please, my brothers, he begged, don't be such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone for they are my guests and under my protection. All right, so let's remember that this is descriptive, not prescriptive, all right? So that means that this portion of scripture is giving you history, okay? This is not a prescriptive advice for the fact of if people come to your house, you're supposed to throw your daughters outside, all right? That is just as horrible and heinous as what the people are doing out there, all right? If anything, it should just give you a glimpse into what culture was like back then. How low and demeaned women were, they were viewed as less than, and that's part of the reason why Jesus was killed, why they wanted to kill him so much is because when Jesus came, he was leading a revolution for women. He was teaching women. Like that is unheard of. One of the leading Pharisees at the time said, I would rather burn the Torah than ever teach it to a woman. And Jesus was teaching women. He was constantly lifting up women. And that's part of the reason why people hated Jesus. All right. So this is not at all God's plan for how women should be treated, or it's not at all, you know, how Jesus would act. This is a descriptive historical account of what was going on. And at that time, also, it was considered that when you had a guest over, that it was your responsibility to protect that guest at any cost, even if it meant sacrificing your life, or the lives of your children, the guest was meant to be kept safe at any cost. So again, we're just piercing into the culture of um, you know, ancient times, and that's what it is that we are reading. Okay, so as um, Lot's having this really odd conversation with all of these very excited men, um, the angels come out and they say, stand back, they shouted, this fellow came to town as an outsider. And now he's acting like our judge. We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunged toward, toward Lot to break down the door. But the two angels reached out, pulled Lot into the house and bolted the door. They blinded all of the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house. So they gave up trying to get inside. The funniest part about that is the last verse, which shows that they were blind and still trying to get inside, which that is really, really messed up. All right, so here's the point. There was rebellion, and then there was justice. It was just after this that the entire city gets destroyed, all right? And it's because of what people were doing inside the city. And Jude uses this story because this would have been a very common story to his audience. He uses this story to show that when people rebel, 
when they do what it is that they want, when they go outside of God's plan for sexuality, God's plan for humility. Again, Ezekiel tells us that the reason why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed was because of their pride. When people go outside of God's intended way for humanity to operate, there is normally justice or there will always be justice is the point. All right. So he's using this story because there's teachers out there that are telling people, God loves you so much that you can do whatever you want. God loves you. He's gracious and you can do whatever you want. And you see the point, the reason why this is so challenging is because there is truth inside the message. God loves you so much. God loves you so much, but he loves you so much that he wants you to operate in the way that you were created to, all right? It's not, a, it's not permission to do whatever it is that you want. He actually has so much grace that he's trying to keep you out of the justice. He knows what will come when you disobey, so he's trying to keep you out of that, and that's kind of God's provision, all right? So we understand this terrible description a little bit more again when we understand that this is how the culture operates. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. And just kind of a Bible study tool for you guys. Every single time you open the Bible, you should ask yourself, is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? Descriptive is just describing to me what was going on, all right? If I open, um, you know, a passage about, you know, people stealing things or killing people, I don't go, man, this is how I should live my life. No, I go, okay, this is probably not a prescriptive um, passage telling me how I should live now. And most of the New Testament is prescriptive, most of it. Um, a lot of the Old Testament tends to be descriptive. And that's okay. We just have to know. All right, so both of these stories are all about rebellion against God's order, which led to sexual immorality. And that's per- precisely what these corrupt teachers are doing now. Sexual immorality is leading towards, or their, um, their rebellion is leading towards sexual immorality. All right, we just got a few more verses. Got to go quick. Jude 1, verse 8, it says, In the same way these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives. They defy authority and scoff at supernatural beings. Okay, so again, he's giving you like road signs for false teachers. If you notice, he never even talks about their teaching. He talks about their living. Because normally the way that people live will show you the doctrine that they believe. Does that make sense? So the way way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we live is based off of what we believe. And many times the reason why people do whatever it is that they want, they're trying to please their flesh is because they actually have messed up doctrine. And when we have good doctrine, a lot of times that converts into the way that we live because we want our, we want our hearts to be changed, right? So he's giving us kind of a roadmap here and he shows us that there will be false teachers. This is so funny. There'll be false teachers who claim authority based off of their dreams. Isn't that like so funny? I mean, that's kind of what people do. I mean, they write themselves into Genesis to make sure that they have authority. I mean, that's what false teachers do and have done for a long time is that they claim authority based off of some special revelation, quote unquote, God told me, or I had a dream or I feel. And if you don't know scripture, you don't know how ridiculous that sounds. So we want to make sure that we are grounded in scripture. All right. 
This is a cool little nugget from Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Um, the darkest days of Israel, like society was characterized by the term that every man did what was right in their own eyes. Like that's when you know that society is at the darkest that it's ever been is when people are not living by a standard, but they are living by whatever it is that they want. Because the problem is there will always be people that want things that are in no way right. All right. So the way that you know that society is in a dark period is when people are doing whatever it is that they deem right in their own eyes. All right. Two more verses. Jude 1 verse 9. It says, but even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses's body. All right. So again, Jude refers to Apocrypha literature. This is um, known as the Testament of Moses, or it gets confusing because this is... um, or the assurance of Moses, because there's only a few um, fragments of this um, ancient literature, and that's why it wasn't canonized. If you buy the Testament of Moses now, there's only 12 chapters, and it actually doesn't even refer to this segment. But if you go to the Church Fathers, Origin, and people like that, which hopefully you guys know, um, they talk about um, the rest of this Testament of Moses. So what happens is, in this um, story in the Testament of Moses, Moses is dead, and they're having this like argument, Lucifer and Michael over the body of Moses. Because in case you didn't know, no one knows where Moses is buried. That's a whole nother interesting thing. But um, they're having this argument over the body of Moses. And pretty much the point of the story of referencing this, um, this story is that Michael decided to leave uh leave the penalty of Lucifer to God alone. He was like, I'm not going to, um, you know, seize justice. I'm not going to, you know, do what it is that needs to be done. I'm going to allow God to do it. And we kind of see that throughout scripture, you know, um, it belongs to the Lord. I'm not going to seize it myself, you know, and that's the reason why he refers to this. He's just leaving it open for God to do what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, so just in case you didn't know, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Edwin Blum, hopefully these people are familiar to you. All of these like church fathers all refer to this portion and, um, and the uh, Testament of Moses. But in some way, whether it was you know, during the destruction of the temple or whether it was during um, some of the fires in 1492, these... Uh, ancient artifacts got destroyed and we don't have them. All right. So if you buy the um, Testament of Moses, it's only 12 chapters. Not that interesting because this portion isn't in it. All right. So just to kind of let you know what's going on with all of that. So the section that Jude quotes from, again, is the place where Moses died and then they're fighting over it. And the whole point was that judgment belongs to the Lord alone. When someone wrongs you, when they do something wrong, it's not up to you to bring about judgment. It's completely up to God. All right, last verse. Here we go. This is a lot of verses, guys. All right, verse 10. Here we go. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own destruction. 
All right, so again, he tells all of these stories that might seem odd to you. Genesis 6, chapter 19, all of these different things that might seem really odd, but to his audience, they would have known these stories well. They would have seen them as rebellious acts against God's authority. When people rebel against God's authority, what comes is normally justice, right? This is what we got to see all throughout the Old Testament. When people rebel, justice comes. When people rebel, justice comes. And he tells all of these stories to show that there are repercussions for rebellion against God. All right. There are great repercussions for rebellion against God. Okay. This is why Jesus came. All right, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like, do you guys understand why Jesus came? Like, do do we actually wrap our head around the fact that you and I are guilty of rebellion against God and the repercussions for what it is that you've done is death? The repercussions for the poor jokes that you've said, the lust that you've had, the anger that you felt, the repercussions for all of those things are death. Because what you've done is you've sinned against a morally perfect God. A morally perfect God created you to be holy as I am holy, to be set apart. And what you and I have done is we have chosen our own way of doing things instead of God's way. And the penalty is death. Okay, again, God is merciful, but he's just. And you see, the only way that a just God can give you mercy is for Jesus to step in. Because you see, if Jesus, if God would have just said, you know what, Dave, you've made a lot of mistakes in your life, but I'm merciful, so I'm just going to let you go. That is merciful, but there's no justice. There's no justice involved. And he is a God that is just. So he goes, the only way that I can let you off the track is if someone pays the penalty that you owe. Someone has to pay the penalty that you owe. When you lusted, when you lied, when you fornicated, all of these things that we as humans have found to be pretty normal, there is an absolute penalty for it. And God so loved you that Jesus came. He wasn't forced by God. He came by his own will. And he goes, I'm willing to take the penalty on for them. Even though I'm sinless, he's blameless. He paid the ultimate price for you. That's why it's such good news. That's why we're supposed to be willing to share the good news. But you see, there's people out there that are going to lie to you and say that you're really not that bad. And you see, as long as you believe that you're really not that bad, you'll never truly understand why Jesus came. We have been lied to believe that we're really not that bad, and we will never wrap our head around why Jesus came. We have failed, we've fallen short, but Jesus has come and paid the ultimate price for you. He came and paid the ultimate price for you. And what happens is that um, justice of God is fulfilled. That wrath of God is fulfilled. And like Paul talks about, we're able to stand in right standing with the Father. 
God doesn't see our mistakes when we ask for forgiveness. The blood of the cross covers it, and we are able to stand in right standing with the Father. So as we um, close this section of Jude, I just want to kind of do what Jude did, and as he said, a reminder. All right, so I'd like us to have a minute where we have a reminder of the fulfillment of Jesus. So if you wouldn't mind just bowing your heads and let's take a second and, and realize that we are people that have fallen short. Maybe you've, um, you know, had this moment a lot or maybe you've never actually had this moment with God, but God, I've fallen short. I've chosen my own way over yours. God, thank you for what you did. Thank you for paying the ultimate price for me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I want to live my life in obedience to you. So God, we just thank you for what it is that you've done, who it is that you are. In your name, amen. If you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to like and subscribe for more from your Reclaim Church family. God bless, and we hope that you have an amazing week.